Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It was London in the Thatcher era, a time of minor strikes and punk rock, and a group of male friends had just moved to the city. Fresh out of uni, they were living in a flat above a brothel, sorry, massage parlour, in Highgate, North London. The flat was disgusting. They'd had a party there a few months before and someone had thrown up in the bath, so they just stopped using the bath. One day, a burglar walked in and stole the TV. When the friends got home, they thought the place had been empty, but someone had been there. Their mate was so absorbed in preparing a legal case or writing for socialist alternatives or something that the burglar had walked right by him, stolen the TV from under his nose and walked right out again. The happily oblivious young man was, of course, a young Keir Starmer, now on our radios and TV screens, making the pitch to become our next Prime Minister. People aren't going to take it anymore. They've had enough. The British people are turning to Labour to provide that change. A changed Labour Party for a changed Britain. But who is the man behind the soundbites? Who will he be if he makes it all the way to number 10? And what happened to that focused young man living in that grotty flat? In this special two-part profile, we've tried to uncover the real Keir Starmer. We've travelled to his childhood home and his favourite North London pub. We've spoken to those who've worked with him, who've partied with him and who've known him since childhood. He had an active interest in women and they had an active interest in him. I remember thinking as he was arguing, Keir, for God's sake, spice it up a bit. But he wasn't interested in spicing it up a bit. Did Keir get arrested? I can't say that. We've been told, if you want to understand Keir Starmer and Keir Starmer's politics, you need to look at his life before he became a politician. So, from Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And I'm Maggie Chambray. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're profiling Keir Starmer. And we're asking... Who really is the man who wants to be our next Prime Minister? Keir Rodney Starmer was born in Southwark, South London, in 1962. He was the second of four children to Rodney, who, as you may have heard by now, was a toolmaker, 
and Josephine, who was a nurse. They moved to Oxted, a London commuter town in the Surrey countryside, when Keir was a little boy. His parents were devoted lefties and named him after the first Labour leader, Keir Hardy. Starmer's mum was diagnosed with Stills disease, a debilitating autoimmune condition, when she was 11. She was forced to give up her job as a nurse when she became too ill to carry on. She could barely walk for most of her life. Um, She was in a wheelchair. She had crippling arthritis and steroid treatment. Um, And in the end, it meant we spent a lot of time in a high dependency unit with her and she had to have her limbs cut off. That's Starmer talking to Jack at a Politico event in 2019. Rodney Starmer raised his four children and looked after his sick wife on his own while working as a toolmaker. Since his dad passed away in 2018, Starmer has spoken more openly about how tough things were for them growing up. You know, there were many times when the electricity and the telephone bill didn't get paid. We made the 40-minute train journey from London, Victoria, and then the quick 10-minute walk from the station in Oxted to see the semi-detached house on the country road where Keir Starmer grew up. Our next station stop will be Oxted. I'm really sorry to bother you. I was wondering whether you knew if Keir Starmer lived in one of these houses. Keep going around the corner and about 200 yards down on the left-hand side. We're looking for a pebble dash. Is it that one? Let's go and look. I think it's that one. Okay, we are standing outside Keir Starmer's childhood home. We tracked it down. It did take us a while to find it because it actually has had a bit of a makeover since Keir Starmer did a photo shoot outside it. It's a different colour. I think actually the door is opening. Oh, hello! As we stood outside the house with our microphones, a slightly bemused man in shorts opened the door, asked us what we were doing, and then, kindly, invited us in for a cup of tea. So here we are, we are sitting in the kitchen of the family home in Oxted where Keir Rodney Starmer grew up. Lovely semi-detached house in the countryside. The owner of the house has kindly made us a lovely, <laughs> lovely cup of tea. Both a lovely cup of tea. Didn't want to be interviewed, but was very happy to show us photos of the house the way it used to be and we just bumped into one neighbour who said we you know we asked if he knew the family he's lived down the road knew Keir since he was a boy and he just said that they were a lovely family mm. and that Rod spent his whole life looking after Keir's mum and I think that comes across very strongly from everyone that we've seen yeah I think so and also something that someone told us was that Keir's dad Rod after Josephine died built himself a sort of outhouse in the garden and lived there and sort of couldn't bear to live in the house anymore after she died and obviously he devoted so much of his life to looking after her. One of the neighbours was saying to us that there was a storm in the late 70s where some of the windows smashed and Rodney just boarded them up and didn't fix them for many many years and actually we've got a picture here of one of the windows just not being replaced and being boarded up so it kind of does sound like either when Josephine was in her later days or after she died, the house did fall into disrepair. Definitely from sitting here, I think that we have a little bit more of an insight into the upbringing of Starmer. Clearly, things were tough for the family, but the young Keir didn't give much of that away at school. In the mid-1970s, he passed his 11-plus and went to Reigate Grammar, then a state-selective school 10 miles away. 
We got to know each other because a group of us got the bus to school. This is Andrew Cooper, then Keir Starmer's school friend, now a member of the House of Lords and a former advisor to David Cameron. Even though we were all quite close at school, I didn't know that his mum had been so unwell for so long. His dad was a slightly legendary figure, Rodney, and quite a big guy, and, and clearly a very difficult character, and, and, and Keir talked more about that since. But Keir used to, used to sort of laugh and sort of tease a bit and, and grumble about, about his dad. Clearly, you know, he's called Keir because his dad was a very committed socialist and he's named after Keir Hongley, and I'm sure part of the politics that's, in, that's embedded in Keir and the commitment to social justice, I'm sure that a lot of that he grew up with. The young Starmer took violin lessons alongside a boy called Norman Cook, but you may know him as Fatboy Slim. When he was 12, he met Andrew Cooper. I think my first sort of real registering of him, I think mean, those days, you know, was playing top trumps and larking around. And I think it's quite interesting because it's so, I think, out with the way that he comes across a lot of people now as a public figure. And he was very well-liked, a very gregarious charismatic extrovert if there was a sort of a gang of kids at the bus stop sort of laughing around at something you could bet that Keir would be at the heart of it and that was how he appeared the demeanor he brought to discussion of political stuff and I heard in another interview you called him a bit of a lad yeah I mean and I he, he, he pushed back a bit on that He's not completely wrong about that, Nick. I'm going to be on the phone to Andrew most <laughs> the moment I get out of this studio. He texted me and said, jokingly, of course, and said, um, you got me into trouble. But what's interesting, I think, about that is that people look at him now and think he's this very kind of earnest political figure. Yeah. And sometimes people look at politicians and think there's something kind of weird and abnormal about them. And this was a very you know, normal person with normal interests and the same enthusiasm that you expect a teenager to have. He, you know, had an active interest in women and they had an active interest in him. That I do remember. Okay, so this was the normal teenage stuff he was up to. Teen Starmer was also already very political. He was leading the East Surrey Young Socialists and said he spent his early days trying to convince people in his mostly Tory-supporting area to convert to socialism. He, Andrew Cooper, and another boy, Andrew Sullivan, now known as a right-wing controversialist commentator, all spent their time on the bus talking and arguing about politics. Andrew was a very sort of hardcore conservative. This is the fag end of the Wilson-Callaghan government going into the 1979 election, which happened in our own little year as it was. So Andrew was a big fan of Margaret Thatcher. Keir and I were both supporters of the Labour Party. I don't particularly remember sort of disagreements between he and I. We were brought in, and we were very much in a minority of people who sort of at that age were supporting a Labour government in, a, in a, what, what had become a private school in a very conservative constituency. In case you're wondering, Rygate Grammar became a private school after Starmer joined, so he never paid, but younger years had to. In 1982, he went to Leeds to study law, and at uni he was apparently a bit of a party animal. Aggie, let me show you a photo I've uncovered of him at uni. Oh, my God! <laughs> I mean, he looks... So he, he's got... How would you describe that haircut? I don't know the name for that haircut. I don't think it's a mullet. OK, he's wearing a sort of checkered shirt, which maybe doesn't have sleeves. Yeah, he's got the biceps on. <laughs> and there's some eyeliner happening. Yeah, Wow. We'd be out Thursday, 
Friday, Saturday, take Sunday off, out Monday. So this is John Murray. He met Keir Starmer at university and they remain close friends to this day. Until exam time came and then it's serious. So he was pretty uh, intense on his politics and his football. He was pretty passionate in things. He was he was good fun. This is Starmer speaking to Nick Ferrari on LBC last year. I, I did get a detention, yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, what for? I did. Fighting. <laughs> Who did you fight? I can't remember, but they're always around the back of the. You were a lively lad, weren't you? John Murray has one particular memory of a young Keir getting into a fight. But that was only protecting somebody else. Our friend Andy had, at that time, had his head shaved. So Andy was looking like a skinhead. And uh, we got to the pub, a group of us, we found Andy being chased down the road by a load of lads who'd taken exception to his shaved head. We waded in, and um, I was instantly knocked out, actually saw stars. Kia got off scot-free. So typical, not even a mark on him. Anyway, somehow we ended up in going to hospital looking like Saturday night casualties. Kia was um, absolutely fine. And did he get any good punches in? I don't know because I was uh, out cold fairly early on. So I, don't know. I don't know what happened. I think we deflected the blows from our friend. That was obviously our main aim. John Murray and Keir Starmer went on a summer holiday to France hoping to earn some pocket money by selling ice creams. So we saw an advert in the university notice board saying, come to the south of France and earn hundreds of pounds a day selling ice creams on the beaches. We're all in Europe now. You can come and work legitimately. Please ring this number. So they were going to pay our campsites and they said we'd earn lots of money. Anyway, we went out, me and Keir and another friend of ours, Mark, and um, we spent a month in the south of France, really as almost beach bums, selling ice creams to tourists and making about four francs a day it wasn't very well paid the, the place was overrun with other beach sellers because they'd all been suckered into thinking we're going to earn hundreds of pounds a day and then we found out it was actually not legal so uh, we spent our time kind of avoiding being arrested any close shaves yeah but to be honest we i did get arrested but all that happened was you um you had your ice creams confiscated got a receipt and then had to walk back to the beach without your flip-flops um, did Keir get arrested i can't say that go on I can't say. I think he probably had his ice creams confiscated. Hang on. Former chief prosecutor and wannabe prime minister Keir Starmer once had a brush with the law while working as an illegal ice cream seller in the south of France. Aggie, I think you'd call that a scoop. (laughs) I should add, a Labour spokesperson later told us they were happy to make clear no arrests were made, no names were taken and the only loss of liberty was to some cut price ice creams. In those days, you were looking for solutions and differences and striking out against everything. He was very supportive of the miners' strike. He was just really interested in, in politics in a way that probably the rest of us weren't so. Interested in the theory of it, learning more about it. Uh, he had a hunger for it. He also worked very hard on his law degree and left Leeds with a first. Then he was accepted to Oxford to do a BCL, which is a year-long graduate law course that Oxford describes on its website as world-renowned for people with outstanding first law degrees. And then, in 1986, he moved to London, where he lived above a brothel... Massage parlour. ...in Highgate. John Murray went with him. You say a brothel. It was actually a sauna and massage centre. I think it's just a coincidence the landlord was put in prison for living off moral earnings. After the landlord got imprisoned, we used to give our rent money to the um, the women who kind of self-determined downstairs and they, they were our landlords. 
one day they just disappeared and did a moonlight flit and set up elsewhere. So we, we couldn't pay rent to anyone for two years. It was horrendous. It was a fairly shabby flat. Anything went. I remember we had a washing machine and um, it hadn't really been plumbed in very well because we'd done it and it leaked and it fell through the floor. So our solution was to stop using the kitchen below. And then another occasion, um, we had a lot of parties and the flat would be so full, the floors would be bouncing. I remember at one, one point, somebody um, was sick in the bath. Could have been any one of us or probably a complete stranger. But rather than clean it up, we just stopped using that bathroom because there was another one. So this is where I almost get whiplash, Aggie. I know exactly what you mean. You've got... Keir Starmer living in a party flat there's festering sick in the bath but then by day he was going off to work in grand buildings at the heart of legal London embarking on the first baby steps of this high-powered career as a barrister where everyone we've spoken to describes him as quite serious very very sensible so this was the start of a journey that would take him to the top of the legal profession and then propel him into politics stay with us The young Keir Starmer arrived for an interview at a prestigious chambers in the leafy legal heart of London, in a cardigan. Nervous, fresh-faced, he was hoping to embark on a career as a barrister. Despite the knitwear and the nerves, he got the pupillage, which is like an apprenticeship for barristers, and he was called to the bar in 1987. I probably met Keir not that long after he came to the bar, and I, I just remember him as this obviously very bright, rather serious, obviously relatively driven individual. Ken MacDonald is a crossbench member of the House of Lords, a distinguished barrister, and Starmer's predecessor as Director of Public Prosecutions. I mean, I, I could see when he was quite junior, he obviously worked very hard on his cases. He was never someone who came to court unprepared. He always knew the law, he knew the facts, he knew what his arguments were going to be. So I get the impression from the, in the early days, certainly, 
in his private life, he was a bit bohemian. Yeah, of course. And did that come across? Could you see yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. We, we all came from the same sort of background. He, I mean, I'm 10 years older than Keir, but we were all kind of, you know, lefty students. I mean, he was involved with some socialist group at Leeds, I think it was. You know, I was involved in similar groups in Oxford. You know, he came to the bar, no doubt, with a kind of pedigree as a, as a left-wing student. And he, he came to the bar to do human rights cases, to do public law cases, to represent tenants rather than landlords, you know, employees rather than employers. Starmer practised from a chambers called Doughty Street, where that was the ethos. Defending, not prosecuting, being on the side of the little guy and lots and lots of legal aid work. Keir's practice would have been virtually 100% legal aid. I mean, one thing I think we can say with complete confidence is that Keir did not come to the bar to make money because if he'd wanted to make money, he could have done so and he chose a, a career in which he wasn't going to make much money and he never did make a huge amount of money, but he did good work. As well as these not brilliantly paid legal aid cases, Starmer did a lot of work for free. One thing he became very well known for was doing pro bono death penalty work. So he took on a lot of cases in the Caribbean, where of course the death penalty still exists in some countries, which he would do pro bono. And these, these were difficult, hard cases which took a lot of preparation, hundreds of hours for each case. So he'd spend a lot of his time on cases that weren't paid. But it wasn't the death penalty which gave Keir Starmer his first brush with national fame. It was burgers. In 1990, two activists, Helen Steele and David Morris, a gardener and a former postman, were sued for libel by McDonald's for putting out leaflets criticising the restaurant chain's employment practices, environmental record, advertising to children and the health impact of their food. Helen and David couldn't afford a lawyer so famously decided to represent themselves. But luckily, one Keir Starmer came along early and volunteered to give them legal advice. He worked without payment on that case for years. He obviously cared about the, the principles of, of freedom of speech and uh, the right to protest. Here are Helen and David talking about working with him on Radio 4's The Reunion. You know, he wrote our original defence for us. We didn't have a clue how to put in a libel defence. It was really great working with him. And he stuck with us all the way through uh, without any pay. So, you know, fair deal for him, yeah. And when he stood for Labour leader, he proudly drew attention to that McLibel trial and his record as a human rights lawyer. 20 years ago, I was with Helen Steele and Dave Morris, the activists who McDowell's were trying to shut up. They were actually raising issues. Guess what they were raising? Low pay, insecure work. But while working as a barrister, he also took on some criminal cases, including a few with Ken MacDonald. I don't know if Keir will ever listen to this podcast, but I remember doing one case that he'll remember, which was uh, we were representing um, members of the, you remember the INLA? It was, a, it was a Republican paramilitary group that was operating in the kind of 90s, the Irish National Liberation Army. And we were doing a case at Woolwich and Keir had quite a good point on surveillance evidence. We were defending and it was quite an interesting, exciting point. And I remember thinking as he was arguing it, Kiev, for God's sake, spice it up a bit. This is a really exciting point. So he wasn't, he, but he wasn't interested in spicing it up a bit. He just wanted to explain the law to the judge, have the, the judge understand the law and win the argument. And, you know, I would probably have spiced it up, but I rather admire him for not spicing it up. I actually hadn't realised that he had represented INLA members. I mean, 
for listeners who aren't so familiar with Northern Irish politics, that's like more extreme than the IRA. Yeah, really dissident Republicans. Yeah, but they're, they're defendants in a criminal trial. Mm. You know, they're entitled to representation. I mean, Keir, Keir would not have, feel any shame at all about doing that case. Well, I think it's just because, particularly when he ran for Labour leader, he made a virtue of some of the people he had defended. And so if we are to sort of admire him for the McLeibel trial, for example... It feels like then we should be judging all the people he defended. Maybe. Yeah, I can see. I can see what you're saying, but I, I think if you're if you're a barrister, it's absolute second nature not to judge your clients. If they tell you they're not guilty, however preposterous their defence, you have to represent them. You're obliged to. The cab rank rule requires you to. So, how much input would he have had into who he defended and didn't? Well, I mean, you, 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 you do, of course, you have some input because you can always at any time be too busy to do a case. So, you, you, of course, you're right. You do make a selection. And if there's a case you really didn't want to do because you really didn't like the defendant, you could hide behind that, that position, I'm too busy to take on this case. Over time, Starmer moved from focusing on individual cases to strategic litigation. Essentially, cases that don't just change things for one individual, but change the law itself. And he developed a good reputation at the bar. He wasn't a showy advocate, even as he became more experienced. He's never been a showy performer. He's never, you know, used purple passages or waved his arms around. He's very straightforward. And judges liked him. Judges trusted him. Whether you were on the same side as him in a case or whether he was on the other side, he's not someone who kind of played tricks or, or cheated or tried to pull the wool over the court's eyes. He was a, I'd say he was a very, very honest advocate. I mean, he, he wasn't in the absolute first rank of the great stars, he wasn't a David Panic or a Dinah Rose, but he was very, very good. Starmer was appointed Queen's Counsel in 2002, a few months before his 40th birthday. And the following year, he applied for an interesting new part-time advisory role, a position he would hold for five years, human rights advisor to the policing board in Northern Ireland. Keir Starmer had been a human rights lawyer railing against the system from the outside. This was his first experience of going inside an organisation to deliver change. And he found this way was far more effective. Dennis Bradley was vice chair of the policing board, a former priest who had served as a go-between between the IRA and MI6 at the height of the troubles. He was sitting on the panel when Keir Starmer QC came in for his interview. I remember thinking, boy, is he good. He is incredibly impressive. He had that objectivity. He had that clarity. He was impressive in his overview of the depths and the, and the problems that were going to be faced. Starmer understood the challenge. After 30 years of violence and killing in the Troubles, they were creating a brand new police service for Northern Ireland that would command the confidence of everyone. If you were Catholic, you likely saw the old police service as antagonists in the conflict, even sometimes working alongside terrorist groups. But if you were Protestant, you likely saw the police as the upholders of law and order against the IRA. Keir Starmer's task was to rebuild policing from the ground up while keeping everyone on side. So to go into the murkiness of that demands clarity, demands intelligence, but particularly, I suppose, it demands insightfulness and where you don't antagonize completely and totally those with whom you're going to work, but you also win the confidence of those who are actually going to be at the receiving end of the service that you're talking about. That's a big job. 
Starmer's job was to ensure that the new police service was human rights compliant. So he dived into the detail, fell in love with Northern Irish politics and worked to earn the trust of politicians from across the spectrum. You need to see both sides of the story to bring good human rights into legislation and then into into the actual implementation of that within the day-to-day life. There has to be an equality right across. It's not a matter of knocking out the bad boys and bringing in the good people. It's a matter of changing a system. I think Keir contributed something very, very important to policing in Northern Ireland. And I think the reason why he's important to British politics at the moment is that he brings all those strengths. Sometimes people in politics want the warmth and the hug and the personality. Kieran's not, those are not his greatest strengths, but his great strengths, if you work with him closely, if you see his writing, if you see his, his insightfulness and the decency that he brings to that, then I think that you feel very satisfied. And then some nights when you want to really forget it all and go for a drink, you think, well, I'm not going with Keir because he'll still be like that out in the pub. As Starmer's time advising the policing board came to an end, he started to plan his next move. He rang the man responsible for running all criminal prosecutions in the UK, the then Director of Public Prosecutions, Ken MacDonald. Keir called me up and said he wanted to come and talk to me about something, so he came round and we were sitting in our kitchen. He started asking me about how the job had gone, so I could have guessed what was coming, and then he said to me, I'm sort of thinking of applying to do it because I was in my last few months. And I was absolutely delighted. I thought he'd be good at it. And one of the, the main reason I thought he, he'd be good at it is because he is such a serious person. I knew he wouldn't be doing it because he wanted to be famous. He wouldn't be doing it because he had some ulterior narcissistic motive. He would genuinely see it as an opportunity to do something useful. And I think that's what he did feel. So I, was, I encouraged him strongly. I said I thought he'd be great at it. And actually, I think he was a bit of a shoe in I think he, he, once he'd applied for it, he got it quite easily. I don't think there was much question once he'd applied, but that he'd get it. I suppose to us, it looks a little bit like he went from a radical human rights lawyer to a quite different role. Yeah. Is, are we right to see it that way? No, I don't think you are. And, and people said the same about me because I was a criminal defence lawyer before I became DPP. And, and some people said it was a sellout, you know, I'd been a defence lawyer and I was a prosecutor. And some people did say that about Keir, but I think it's a very ill-informed take. I mean, both Keir and I saw prosecutors as having a really important role in delivering fair trials and delivering justice. I used to tell prosecutors, and I'm sure Keir did as well, that they were human rights lawyers too. And it was their job, essentially, to make sure that due process was followed and that, so far as possible, just results were achieved. But to some of his colleagues at the bar, the DPP job was a sellout. And it took his old housemate, John Murray, by surprise too. I never saw that coming when he's been a human rights defence kind of lawyer all his life to become the chief prosecutor. But I think he thought, well, I've got this opportunity. This is the chance for me to make a difference. Keir Starmer served as Director of Public Prosecutions from 2008 to 2013. That meant he was in charge of delivering criminal justice in the UK, running an organisation of seven or 8,000 staff and about 3,000 lawyers. But how should we judge his time as DPP? Where do you even begin to evaluate his record when he was overseeing roughly 900,000 cases a year? Tom Witherow is a news and special projects reporter for The Times. He recently did a deep dive into Starmer's record as DPP. When I approached this for the story for The Times, 
it was about thinking about some of those cases that, you know, years later you're able to say those were some of the definitive decisions. Those were some of the really tough calls that had to be made. Ken McDonald says that Starmer's biggest challenge and success as DPP was restructuring the Crime Prosecution Service during a period of major budget cuts. During the austerity years, the CPS lost about a third of its budget. It lost about a third of its frontline prosecutors. I mean, imagine if the NHS lost a third of its doctors. Mm. You know, that's the sort of scale of disaster that you're talking about. So I think the fact that he held the CPS together, the service levels didn't seem to decline in the face of those really brutal spending cuts was a, was a huge achievement. There are two other successes from his time as DPP that Starmer himself points to and that there's broad agreement on. The first was phone hacking, which had fallen off the agenda before he became DPP. The second was prosecuting politicians who'd been fiddling their expenses. But the biggest controversies from Starmer's time as DPP relate to police misconduct, as Tom Witherow from The Times explains. Some of the most controversial cases during that time were to do with cases where where the police killed people and whether they were prosecuted or judged as they should have been. And for this story, I spoke to the stepson of Ian Tomlinson, who was a newspaper vendor who was shoved over during a protest, a G20 protest. Ian Tomlinson collapsed and died after being struck by the police during the G20 protests in 2009. The police later admitted he had been unlawfully killed, but Starmer initially decided not to prosecute. The family said that they had met him. They were quite critical of his personal interactions with the family, saying that he was cold. And it was such a big call that it it did go all the way up to Starmer's desk, yeah. Ken MacDonald, like Starmer after him, faced criticisms over a perceived failure to prosecute rogue police officers when he was DPP. You find yourself making decisions uh, as DPP that you never imagined you'd make before you became DPP. I think in all of the cases that I had of deaths in custody, I never once authorised the prosecution. And I think Keir will have made more than one decision about police custody cases in which he came to the same conclusion that I did, which is that the police couldn't be prosecuted because the, the facts of the case simply didn't support a prosecution. Now, from, from the outside, it always looks as though you're just protecting the police and that you've sort of sold out and that um, you, know, you haven't got the courage to prosecute the police or whatever, but it's not really how it works when you're making those decisions. Probably the most controversial criticism of Starmer's record as DPP was the failure to prosecute Jimmy Savile, which Boris Johnson was widely condemned for mentioning at PMQs. He spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out. So let's briefly set out the facts. In 2009, so while Starmer was head of the CPS, the Surrey police interviewed Jimmy Savile and consulted a CPS lawyer who decided there was insufficient evidence for a prosecution. The case wouldn't have crossed Starmer's desk. In 2012, Starmer commissioned a report into why Savile hadn't been prosecuted, and when it was published, he delivered the public apology on behalf of the CPS. There's a sense in which the DPP takes responsibility for every decision that's made in the CPS, and if things go wrong, the DPP takes responsibility in in that kind of broader rather kind of noble sense that, you know, I take responsibility for this, I'm running the CPS, this shouldn't have happened. But as to whether he had personal responsibility for the 
decision not to prosecute Jimmy Savile, well, he clearly didn't because he didn't make the decision in the case. And I, th- I, I must say, I think if it's an attack in the next election, it's a pretty poor one. I think the reason Boris Johnson was so heavily criticised for what he said, to the extent that one of his senior advisers resigned, was because this attack has a kind of flavour of that sort of very nasty conspiracy stuff. But there's a bigger question as to whether the CPS, under Keir Starmer's direction, overcorrected after the Savile case. Tom Witherow from The Times explains. He promised that that case would be, in his word, was a watershed and pledged to rewrite the guidelines to basically move the dial towards police believing victims as a starting point. But by essentially lowering the bar slightly for evidence in order to get more of these cases in front of a jury, Starmer has faced accusations of creating a witch hunt by some who went through trials only to be acquitted. Labour emphasises that these cases post-date Starmer's time as DPP and it's up to the police to decide how they investigate these crimes. His critics say he's still responsible for the guidance the CPS was using. Whatever you think, what's clear is that Keir Starmer's record as DPP has become something of a political football. He attended 21 sentencing council meetings that watered down punishments. That's why they call him Sir Softy. Soft on crime, soft on criminals. So I think we've got to remember with Starmer's position on the sentencing council, he was one of 13 members, he wasn't the chair, and they were considering a large number of offences. And we don't have the precise discussions in those meetings, so we don't know exactly what was said. But at the same time, the Labour Party really has brought this on themselves because they have highlighted, whether on purpose or by mistake, one of Starmer's potential weaknesses in producing that attack ad. It's a Labour Party accused of going too far, with a tweet that reads, Do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. The guidelines that were put in place for the types of crime that that ad was talking about were done in 2012. And in 2012, Rishi Sunak wasn't yet an MP. But somebody who was on the council for deciding sentencing guidelines was Keir Starmer. They knew it was going to be incendiary. They knew it was going to lead the agenda when it came out. And unfortunately, in this case, it's, it's backfired for them. Starmer does reference his time as DPP frequently. Mr Speaker, I've prosecuted thousands upon thousands of sex offenders. And I remind the Prime Minister, when I was Director of Public Prosecutions, I prosecuted MPs who broke the rule. I've also prosecuted terrorists as the Director of Public Prosecutions. When I was in office as Director of Public Prosecutions... He tends to use it as evidence that he'll be tough on crime. But everyone we've spoken to from his legal days says those are not Starmer's true political instincts. Keir was a liberal, as I am on these issues. I don't think he believes in massively punitive sentencing. I don't think he believes in constant weapons-grade criminal legislation coming in. Even though the Labour Party would sort of hint that well, they, they flirt with that a little bit. You know, if you're now. serious and you want power, he wants to be Prime Minister. And if he's going to be Prime Minister, he's got to make some judgments to become Prime Minister. And it's definitely not the case that being DPP gave him a, a taste for the carceral state. No. You know, even if he kind of well, sort of leaves listen, I, I very much doubt it. I think... If anything, the impact would be the opposite because you... I mean, if you're DPP, you get all the statistics, you see what's happening to the prison population. I mean, he probably thinks, as I do, that there are far too many people in prison who are just damaged 
junkies, people with mental illness, drunks, women with children on the outside. I very much doubt that becoming DPP made him more of a punitive believer in punishment. Around 2013, with the general election starting to loom on the horizon, Keir Starmer, by total coincidence, started to attend lots of lunches and dinner parties in North London, where there just happened to be lots of people from the world of politics. Scarlett Maguire is a bit of a Labour legend. She's advised pretty much every Labour leader since Kinnock, and she knows absolutely everyone in the Labour Party. I was sitting next to him at lunch and I was talking about my mum saying that she wanted me to sort of euthanise her at some stage and she said she really didn't want to get to 90 because she'd be bored and I said, Mum, you know, I'm not going to kill you because you're bored and I suddenly realised who I was sitting next to. Oh, God! (laughs) Director of Public Prosecution, not the sort of thing I should be saying. And it was really interesting. Everybody around that table was quite political. As soon as we started talking about what his job was, I mean, he had the whole room. Starmer had already cultivated a relationship with the then Labour leader, Ed Miliband, and was doing work on Labour's justice policy for him. And the DPP job was soon coming to an end. We did discuss what he would do afterwards. And he was sort of... As you can imagine, very shruggy, I don't really know. Back at the bar, with his term as DPP due to end in mid-2013, it was obvious to everyone that Starmer was planning his next move. I think he had been wanting to go into politics for a long time. I think it was a general view at the bar that he was someone who could end up having a political career. Yeah, I think it was just just a sense one had about Keir that he would be interested in doing that. And those who know him well today say the clues to Starmer's approach as a politician are to be found in his time as a lawyer. I think what you see in him as a political leader, as a political player, is very much the way he was at the bar. It's very much the way he was as a lawyer. He doesn't make great showy speeches. He doesn't insult people. He's not trying to make fun of the process. People get very frustrated. The way I was getting frustrated when he was arguing this point in the Irish National Liberation Army case and I wanted him to sort of let off a few firecrackers and he didn't want to and he doesn't want to in politics either and and that's just who he is and that's the way he's going to do the job and he's not going to change he's not going to suddenly become a kind of great kind of Laurence Olivier orator that's not going to happen he's going to be sort of solid thoughtful clever and he's going to be always thinking a number of moves ahead now sometimes I think he could have more urgency about the way he goes about the task of kind of building credibility and building an alternative vision for the country and so on, but that's how he is. So at some point in his legal career, Aggie, Keir Starmer decided he was going to take a different course, which fascinates me because he'd always intended to have just a career as a lawyer. That's exactly what his childhood friend said to me as well, that the plan was always law. Having said that, though, when Keir was at uni, he did go back to one friend's house and the friend introduced him as, this is the next Labour leader. But they do insist that that was a joke. I think what's interesting is that that change probably happened when he was in Northern Ireland. And even though it doesn't sound like the most exciting role he's held in his life, actually working with those politicians, being on the inside, clearly made him think, actually, railing from the outside, prosecuting case by case isn't going to work for me anymore and that's where he then applies for this big job that gave him a public profile and he used that as a springboard 
into politics. It's hard to tell, though, because I've spoken to a few senior Tories who worked very closely with him when he was DPP, and they say they had no idea about his politics. You know, they saw him as a very senior, very professional civil servant and very fair. And so they, at least at the beginning, didn't predict that move that he'd jump into Labour politics. The veteran Labour MP Frank Dobson has confirmed he will stand down in next year's general election. In July 2014, the MP for Holborn and St Pancras, Frank Dobson, announced he would be retiring at the next general election after 35 years. In the room when he announced it was local party member, known to everyone there as the former Director of Public Prosecutions. Keir Starmer prompted a standing ovation as he called Dobson one of the greatest parliamentarians of our time. Yep, he was running. Keir Starmer's home constituency and an incredibly safe Labour seat was up for grabs. Next week, in the second half of our profile, we hear how Keir Starmer went from backbench Labour MP to the leader of the Labour Party in just five years. We uncover his relationship with Jeremy Corbyn. There were a few of them that weren't drinking the Kool-Aid and weren't signed up to the whole Corbyn project. And Keir was one of those people. Hear what he really thinks. I think what you're seeing now is his real politics, leadership election. There was an understanding of the best issues to talk about if you want to become leader of the Labour Party. His highs and lows as leader. Yeah, he's pretty upset, yeah. It was a good few hours of soul-searching. And who he listens to. We're in contact frequently. Sometimes it's just me sending him a joke. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. And me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. And join us next week for part two of our Keir Starmer profile. Our producer this week was Dan Hardoon of Whistledown Productions and our executive producer was Robert Nicholson. Here at Politico, our editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.